if you would please take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, over this course of the Advent season, we have been looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and there's a, that famous Christmas song called, What Child Is This? And uh, we've been answering that question on Isaiah chapter 9, and we've found out that this child who was born in a manger is a wonderful counselor. He is the, the wise advisor. He always knows the right thing to do. He's always able to accomplish his purposes. We read that this child in the manger is mighty God, that he's not just a man, but he is God himself, a God who is holy, who is going to come to the world in judgment. But he is also the eternal father. And the eternal father approaches his children in tenderness and love, not wishing any to perish, but all to have eternal life through him. And today what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at this idea that Jesus is also the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. I'm going to read these verses as, as we begin. The people walking in darkness has seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in a land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and, every, and the bloodied garments of war will be burned in the fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Our passage today, we are looking at the idea that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so we thought we'd begin with a simple question of what is the Prince of Peace. And we really have two words to, to parse today in this particular point, that Jesus is a prince and he is a prince who is bringing peace. And what is a prince? A prince is a, a son of the king. And so as we look at Isaiah chapter 9 and as we look at Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is a prince, son of the king. The Bible describes him as the son of David and the son of God. If you remember back in 2 Samuel, we just finished 2 Samuel not that long ago. But in 2 Samuel, we have Nathan the prophet coming to David, prophesying on behalf of God, saying this to David, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Whenever he is talking about forever, he's not saying that there will be a line of successive kings without end. He is saying there is going to come a king whose rule will never end. That Jesus, who came as a baby in a manger, is this prophesied son of David. But he is also, as we've discussed, the son of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Jesus was talking with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and, and this is what they said to Jesus. It's quite 
an accusation. They said to Jesus, Now we know you, Jesus. We know that you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you claim to be? And Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. Do you, uh, you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews replied to Jesus, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. What was Jesus doing? Jesus knew himself to be the son of David. But Jesus is also claiming in this passage and throughout the New Testament to have God as his father as well. Jesus is both God and man. This is our Prince of Peace. And it was necessary for Jesus to be both God and man. A man could not do what Jesus was sent to do. He needed to be more. He was also God. But it tells us that Jesus was a prince, but it also says Jesus was a prince of peace. This word peace in the Old Testament is a common word that many of us might know. It's the word shalom. And peace, or shalom, isn't just an absence of hostility. It's not just an absence of, of conflict. But where you have peace, you have this idea of, of prosperity. That the hostilities are ended, and there is now prosperity. And I think we can get this idea when we, we think about the, uh, like the concept of a marriage. You can have a marriage where, where there's an absence of hostility. You're not yelling at each other. You're not throwing anything at each other. Uh, but it's quiet. Now, is that peaceful? Not necessarily. We have to make sure that we don't confuse like a ceasefire with peace. That we don't confuse uh, a cold war with prosperity. A healthy marriage would be one where there is an absence of conflict, but also the, the context of well-being and flourishing. That's what peace is. It's, it's an end of hostility in the presence of flourishing. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verses 4 and 5. And what we have in 4 and 5 is an ending of the hostilities. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come and he ended the hostilities. But then we also have verses 7 through 9. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. Do you see how both of those exist? You have an absence of hostility. The battle is over. 
But once the battle is over, there is now this, this flourishing that happens in God's people. When Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, that's what he is doing. He is ending hostility, but then he is also developing and growing prosperity. And so we have to ask the question, how is this peace achieved? I think oftentimes when we think of peace and we think of Christmas time, we think of our Christmas cards. Has anyone gotten a Christmas card? If we, if we still send those out and get them, it's a changing cultural times, right? But oftentimes you'll get a Christmas card, and if it doesn't have a photo of a family on it, you'll open up the Christmas card, right? And oftentimes there'll be like a little phrase in there. It might say, peace on earth. You've seen one like that or a poster, peace on earth. In fact, if it's extra biblical, it might say, peace on earth and goodwill to men. But is that all that passage says? It says, peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom he is well pleased. That's the entire concept of what the angels are saying to the shepherds in the field, that Jesus is coming and he is coming to bring peace. But being a prince of peace means before there is going to be a flourishing of prosperity, there first has to be an end of oppression. Peace isn't just this thing where you wake up one day and you wake up with your neighbor across the way and you're like, you know, we don't like each other, we hate each other, but yeah, we're just going to agree to get along. That's not how peace is achieved. Peace is achieved by enemies being destroyed. He gives us an example in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4, he says, You have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders and the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. The day of Midian is a particular battle that is referenced in the book of Judges, chapter 6 and 7. And it has this judge who helped save Israel. His name was Gideon. Has anyone ever heard of Gideon? He said, why is Gideon being referenced here? Gideon, Gideon was a member of of the weakest tribe in Israel, and he was basically the least in his family. And Midian, this powerful country, in, in, in Judges chapter 6, it describes Midian as a swarm of locusts, that there were so many Midianites pouring into Israel, and they were, they were consuming all that Israel was producing, and, and Israel was stricken. And God goes to Gideon as Gideon is hiding from the Midianites, and he says, Gideon, mighty warrior, I've got something for you to do. And Gideon's like, he's like looking around, saying, mighty warrior. There's, sorry, you, you've made a mistake. No mighty warriors here. And God said, I'm sending you to free my people from the Midianites. And after a few, um, few more episodes, a few more things that happened, Gideon is finally at the point of, of putting together an army to defeat the Midianites. And he calls all of Israel together and the, and the Israelites come up and he has an army of 32,000 men. And against a swarm of Midianites, that doesn't sound like that much, does it? But God was with Gideon. He looked at the army and says, Gideon, your army is too big. What I want you to do with these 32,000 men, I want you to go and I want you to make them an offer. If anyone doesn't want to fight, or if anyone is afraid, 
I want you to give them the opportunity to just go home. And so Gideon stood before the troops. He made that offer. And of the 32,000 people who were there, uh, it's like 22,000 walked away. And Gideon is there with 10,000 men. And God looked at Gideon's army and said, Gideon, your army is too big. I want you to whittle it down. So God had this way of whittling it down. And he said, I want you to go down to the, to the creek there and I want the men to get a drink of water. And there were some men who, who had an interesting way of drinking. They, they, they lapped the water like a dog. Other people knelt like civilized human beings. Everyone else lapped like a dog. And so God said, all right, this is what I want you to do. If someone lapped the water like a dog, that's your guy. Like that's who I want you to go into battle with. And so of the 10,000 man army that Gideon had to free the Israelites from the Midianites, 9,700 walked away. And Gideon was left with 300, 300 farmers, 300 shepherds, 300 men who ran shops and had families there to defeat this swarm of Midianites. And you think, okay, you've got an army of 300, you better really outfit them with the best equipment. And they get ready for battle and Gideon hands them a clay pot, a torch, and a horn. You see anything missing for battle in, in that matchup there? No armor, no weapon, a clay pot, a horn, and a torch. And then, of course, if you're strategic-minded, one of the things you don't want to do, especially if you have a smaller force, is you don't want to divide it. And Gideon said, all right, guys, we're going to divide into three. We've got 300 guys here, three different units going out. And what do they do? They surround the Midian cap at night per God's instructions, at nighttime, they all take their clay pots and they shatter their clay pots on the ground. They all take their horn and they blow on their ram's horn, making a loud noise, and they all light up their torches. And scripture tells us that the Midianites inside their camp woke up in a panic, hearing the shouts, hearing the light, hearing these clay pots, which probably sounded like swords being drawn, spears being made ready for battle, and they panicked. And every Midianite picked up his sword and started fighting, but we're told they ended up fighting themselves and defeating themselves. Why is that story referenced in Isaiah chapter 9? I think there's a very particular reason why. Who was able to claim glory on the day of Midian. In the battle with Gideon and the Midianites, who was able to claim glory? Is it Gideon? Is it the massive Israelite army that came together and rose up? Well, no. Who won that battle? It was God. God said, I am going to be the one who wins the fight. I am going to be the one who wins the victory. I am going to be the one that sets you free. And I'm going to do it in such a way that there's no doubt about who the Prince of Peace is. When it comes to Jesus being the Prince of Peace, Jesus is coming to destroy the enemy. 
to destroy the enemy of sin and death and the curse that oppresses us and keeps us down. And he's doing it in such a way where you can't claim the victory. You cannot be good enough, righteous enough, holy enough to earn the acceptance of God on your own. You know why? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ, the promised prophesied child, shall grow in wisdom and stature without a sin against him. And not a sin of his own shall take the weight of the wrath of God on the cross to set us free. Clay pots and ram's horns and torches to declare that the victory is God's. An innocent man dying on the cross to show that the victory is God's. He is our prince of peace. He has defeated the enemy. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did y'all hear what the Apostle Paul Christ came to reconcile everything to himself. And how did he do it? By shedding his blood on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He has fought the battle and he has won the victory. And we believe that one day he will come again. And the last enemy to be defeated is that of death. And all that is tainted with evil and sinfulness in the world will be removed from the world. And Christ's kingdom shall grow in its extent and will grow in its peace and prosperity will never end. This is our Prince of Peace. So how do we respond to this Prince of Peace who have won us our victory? I think the prophet Isaiah tells us. In verse 3, he says, You have enlarged our nation and you have increased its joy. People who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ that he shed on the cross. We are to be a people who are full of praise and who are filled with joy. So here's just a few things I think we can do this season and throughout our lives to be people who are walking in the victory of Christ. And one of the things that we need to be is a people who sing. People who love Jesus, who've been saved by him, who are delivered by him. We are a singing people. And this is something that's countercultural now. Back in the day, people used to sing at family events. You'd bust out the fiddle and play songs, and people would gather around the piano in the living room. They would sing songs. That's not our culture. still out there some. I know some families that do it, but it's, it's not as prevalent as it once was. 
And about the only place we sing as a people now is like at sporting events and like a change of command. Um, and only one of those places do people actually want to sing. Um, <laughs> but as the people of God, we are called to be people who lift up our voices in song. It is part of our culture at Christ Community Church that we need to be reminded of is that when we sing, we sing loudly. We sing boisterously. We sing from the heart. Because when we sing, we praise our God in heaven. We shout his victories. But it's also something that's happening in the heart of the believers. That as the other voices rise up in this room, we are all reminded of the victory that we have in Christ. We are all reminded to put our hand to the plow and to continue the work of God on this earth. We are increasing in our joy and that is expressed in our songs. Second thing we do is we not only sing, but we are people who tell stories of victories. We tell victory stories. I wonder how many times Gideon around a campfire shared the story and said, so there I was, guys with 300 men who lapped water like dogs. And he told the story over and over and over again. Why? Because it was an amazing victory. So my question for you is, what is the victory that God has won for you in your life? At the very least, and this is not even a least, at the very least, if your faith is in him, he has redeemed you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. But there are other victories there. Other victories where you might say, man, I was on the verge of divorce and my family was falling apart. But by God's great mercy and his grace, he redeemed it. It might be you say, man, I was, I was addicted. I couldn't make it through the day without a drink of alcohol. I was dependent upon it. But by God's great mercy, he has set me free. You might say, I was, I was in bondage to anger. And I got angry at anything and everything, but by God's great grace and mercy, I've been set free. As the people of God, we tell stories. We tell stories of what God has done, not just of our salvation that we have in Christ, but of the victories that he is working in our lives even now. Are you telling those stories? Tell those stories. Share it. Guys, if you have any small group of people, you know you're hearing the same stories over and over. Like my, I'll start a story and my kids, my kids will finish it for me, right? Um, it's fine. Tell the stories. Be reminded of the stories. But also, we tell the stories in hope and expectation that there are future victories. So for you, as you're sitting there thinking, what victories has Christ wrought in my life already? You can also think, what is his next victory? What is the next thing in my life that Christ is going to set me free from? And we operate in faith and trust that we will have that victory as well. We are people who sing songs. We are people who tell of his victories. But we are also people who are a joyful people. That seems obvious if we're talking about increasing its joy. But being joyful, it's just not vogue right now. You know what's vogue? 
being a pessimist. Being a pessimist is vogue, right? We all are like, I'm just going to be, we don't call it being a pessimist, do we? What do we call it? It's called, we call it being a realist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm, I'm a realist. But if you are a Christian and you are a realist, then what is really real? The glory of our God, the salvation he has won for us, the victory and kindness he is showing us in our daily lives, the future hope we have with him and his coming again. If we as Christians are pessimistic, but we call it realists, that's what's really real. We need to be people that we stop being negative about everything. We stop complaining about everything. That sounds so much more like Israel lost in the wilderness, complaining about what God has done, rather than victors following Christ and his victory. Let's set that negativity and that pessimism aside and embrace the joy of following Christ. Then I think finally, we also need to repeat, repeat truth to ourselves. One of the reasons why we might be cynical, why we might be uh, negative and pessimistic, one of the reasons why we might be filled with anxiousness is because we have these reels playing in our mind. And we take the worst case scenario or we think the worst of people and we repeat them over and over and over to ourselves and we create a reality that mimics the reality we've created in our heads. What we do as believers is not to think these things, but rather, as we are told in Philippians chapter 4, that we tell ourselves truth. And whatever is good and true and beautiful, whatever is excellence and worthy of praise, these are the things we think on. And then, as it says in Joy to the World, we repeat these things. We repeat the sounding joy. We repeat the truth that we find in Scripture. We repeat the truth of who God is. We repeat the good things about other people and not the suspicions and the cynicism that we have. And I think as a result of these things, one of the byproducts is we will see our joy increasing. And as our joy increases, our anxiousness will decrease. Tim Keller in his Advent devotional, to be honest, I didn't read it, my wife did, uh, said this, if you are at peace with God, you don't have to be afraid of anything else. The psalmist put it this way, the Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortal do to me? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a prince of peace who has defeated his enemy, has won his victory, and now we get to, we get to follow in his wake and we get to be a joyful people. So let us be joyful together. Let's pray.